Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of Excuse Me While I Organize with Indira Washington and Hayes Taylor, a podcast centered around building solidarity and movements for liberation. Today we'll be discussing how to communicate with the far right. NPR states that violent rhetoric grew more mainstream in conservative intellectual circles. The AP states that the GOP eyes path to power by making peace with the far right. In addition, according to PBS, there is growing far right talk of a civil war. This coupled with the nationwide ammo shortage proves there are few topics more pertinent than the role of the far right in American politics. To discuss the issue, joining us is Professor Cass Mutter, the author of The Failure of the Populist Promise in 2017 and The Far Right Today in 2019. He is also a professor at the International Affairs Department at the University of Georgia. Hey, Cass, how's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. Um, to start off, I want to give our listeners uh, some context. Um, what do you define as far right, and should we consider the Republican Party as far right? So the far right is pretty much uh, every ideology and group who who um, has that ideology where you think that differences in society are natural and should and inequalities in society are natural and should stay outside of the purview of the state, while at the same time, you do not support liberal democracy. And the far right includes two different aspects. On the one end, the extreme right, which is against democracy per se, so against the majority uh, electing its own leaders. So you could think about fascism here. And the radical right, which is okay with people electing their own leaders by majority vote, but have problems with aspects of the liberal democratic system, such as minority rights, rule of law, separation of power. Now, the Republican Party as a party is very difficult to define because it's very broad. Um, It also is not as centralized as many parties in the rest of the world. At the same time, if you look at opinion polls about what the base wants, And if you look at which leaders have been leading the party more recently, and I'm talking, of course, about Donald Trump, but also someone like Ted Cruz, who came in second in in the primaries of 2016, I think think the Republican Party is definitely a far-right party. It's a radical right party for sure. It has clearly issues with minority rights, and particularly you can see that through the gerrymandering that they do as well as the voter suppression, as well as the xenophobia and at times open racism that that Donald Trump has expressed and that that various members of the party have expressed. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, how did the rise of groups like QAnon contribute to Georgians electing someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene to lead? Well, fortunately, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not leading the country yet. I mean, to me, QAnon is more the most recent iteration of the broad world of far-right conspiracy theories that have been part of the Republican Party for a long time. In the 1990s, we were talking about black helicopters that were preparing an invasion of the United Nations, for example. Those type of conspiracy theories 
were already pretty widespread within circles of the Republican Party. Now, all of that has even radicalized further in the last decade, and particularly even more under Trump. But in that sense, I think Trump is a catalyst, and it just made everything more extreme, but also more shared. And QAnon fits for me in that in in that world. So QAnon, as a as a full theory, is supported by only a small group within the Republican Party. But aspects of QAnon are shared much more broader because they link into these conspiracy theories of pretty much Democrats being socialist and being morally kind of perverse, undermining like the red-blooded America. So uh, in that sense, I think QAnon is, is not something necessarily new, even though the details of QAnon are new. Um, what has really changed over the last decade, and again, much faster and more extreme under Trump, is how more open these have become within the Republican Party and how more accepted. And so I would say 15 years ago, probably if you had this type of view and you openly expressed it, it would harm you within the Republican Party. Now it doesn't. I'm not necessarily saying it helps you, um, but it definitely doesn't harm you anymore. Not, not in, at the electoral level, but also not even in Congress. And I think that is uh, very important. Now, I don't know much about the specific district of Marjorie Green, but in most cases, like primaries are, are very, in a very small group of people who participate in the primary. Marjorie Green had quite significant funds, probably much more than her opponents, which helped her win the, the primary. And of course, in most parts of Georgia, if you win the primary, you win the election. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that everyone who votes for Green supports QAnon. I don't think actually everyone who voted for Trump necessarily supports his far-right agenda. But in a heavily polarized country uh, that, that the U.S. is today, there is a huge part of the American population that is okay with voting for a far-right politician, even if they have crazy conspiracy theories, as long as it's not a, dem a Democrat. And I think that is very important. This is what we call negative partisanship in political science, which means that you primarily vote against someone rather than for someone. I think that brings up kind of an interesting point from the Cooperative Congressional Election Study in 2016 that found that 11% of Trump voters had voted for Obama in 2012. And then I also like to pair that stat with like some Newsweek statistics in which 87% of Democrats support Medicare for all and then 67% of all Americans, and then 46% of Republicans support that issue. And so my question to you is, is this kind of like narrative on the left that rightward radicalization is somehow a result of not having material needs being met? To what extent is that true? And do you think that there is an opportunity to mobilize on certain issues, or does that negative partisanship make it impossible to get that 11% of voters who would have voted for Obama in 2012? decided to vote for Trump in 2016? Yeah, so this is actually a very complex question. First of all, Barack Obama was in part the anti-establishment candidate. 
Um, he was young. Um, he was not really seen as a symbol of the party. And so while he now is seen as kind of this ultimate liberal pro-multiculturalism, whatever it is, right, which actually in practice he never really was that much, when he, when he was running, he wasn't so much defined yet. I think that's important to note. And so that group that voted for Obama was not necessarily the most solid democratic voter. The second is the question about economic anxiety, whether, whether the vote for Trump and particularly this swing of allegedly white working class voters away from the Democratic Party towards Trump in particular was because of economic anxiety. Now, the simple answer is no. Every single study pretty much that has been done shows that it is more cultural backlash. It's more about opposition to immigration, opposition to minority groups, and their claims um, upon the majority. Fear of becoming a majority minority country is clearly the strongest indicator. That being said, voters of the far right in general, as well as voters of Trump, believe that the country economically is going in the wrong direction. Um, and they fought that very strongly before Trump came to power. Once he was in power, they didn't think it that much anymore. Um, now, objectively, that wasn't the case. Right? And so you could say, why would you think that? We also know that your average Trump voter, A, didn't think economic inequality was a major issue, and B, didn't think that their own personal economic situation was bad or getting worse. They thought the country was getting worse. Now, when you look at the economic data, there's no evidence for that. So why do they think that? Now, if you are a xenophobe or a racist, you associate particularly non-white people and immigrants with negative characteristics, right? Generally, that they're not hardworking, they're not trustworthy, etc. If you then think that the country is being overrun by these type of people, right, then logically you would also think that the economy is going to tank in the future because you have fewer and fewer hardworking Americans and more and more of whatever you, you call them, parasites or non-productive members of society, which, of course, in the racial racialist view, are particularly non-whites. And so for me, the two are, are interrelated. Right? Cultural backlash and economic anxiety are connected. But I do believe that it is the nativism, it is the racism that drives the economic anxiety more than that it is the objective socioeconomic situation, which is also why I am a little bit skeptical about having a, let's say, for the sake of argument, radical left socioeconomic agenda, getting these people back. Like in the end, there is this whole narrative about the Sanders to Trump voter, but it's a very small group. And if it really was economic anxiety, then these people would have supported Bernie Sanders through everything. But it is the social cultural translation of economic anxiety. It is the connection to immigration and minorities that is important. And the left cannot make that or should not make that. Now, finally, a point about polls. Polls are great. 
I love polls, look at them all the time, and also always quote the parts that are good for my agenda. The fact of the matter, though, is we know this for decades, that if you ask questions in a certain way, there is a very large progressive majority in the US. However, in reality, that progressive majority never materializes. Why? Because things are seen through a partisan lens. And so Obamacare was unpopular. The Affordable Care Act was much more popular. Why? Because it didn't have Obama on it. The individual parts of that act were incredibly popular. But if you push them, then the Republican Party strategists are going to connect them in their rhetoric to Obamacare or to socialism or to something like that. And then what you see is that support drops significantly among that kind of group of Republicans who support socioeconomic policy. So <clears throat> I think, I think it, you have to be careful with just looking at the polls and saying, oh, there is a majority for these policies. This has to do with something that the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci called political or ideological hegemony. And that means that if, if your ideological view is hegemonic, is very broadly shared, then you can get politics through as long as you connect it to that. Now, in the US, pretty much this is the Reagan revolution, like this kind of liberal individualist narrative of the American dream is hegemonic. And that makes social, social equality policies and economic inequality policies hard to sell because a lot of Americans think that you're poor because you didn't work hard. So I guess my question would be, what do you see as the solution? Because I personally don't feel like racial education on, on topics is super successful. But at the same time, if we're talking about, okay, people aren't going to listen to issue mobilization, what, what do you think the solution might be in an organizing sense? Like, how do you communicate with these people? Yeah, well, I mean, white supremacy is, of course, an incredibly important and powerful aspect of American politics and society. And white supremacy is often talked about as white nationalism, as white people wanting to live with other white people and, and having this traditional racist views of a hierarchy based on biology. There are very few people in the US who are openly racist. And there's also a relatively small group that considers themselves as racist. Yet there is a very large group who support white supremacy without knowing it. And they will get upset if you tell them that they support white supremacy. Why? Because when people say, we just want to go back to the old days, like the old days had more white supremacy than today, but it was not acknowledged at that time. And so people just feel that it was normal that whites were more successful than non-whites, that men were more successful than women, that straight people dominated. That They didn't think that was because of a policy because those policies were, were just kind of under the surface. And, and as a consequence, white supremacy is supported by a lot of people who by and large think that they are against it, which includes quite a lot of Democrats as well. Even the whole concept of tolerance, for example, is based upon the power relationship. It's the powerful that tolerate the non or less powerful right, to take part 
in the political conversation. That, that will only disappear over generations. Um, I think it's important to point out what white, what white supremacy is. I think it's important to point out what white privilege is and in general, what privilege is without, without scolding people for having privilege. Like the problem is not so much that white people or white straight men have a certain life. The problem is that other people don't have it. And we have to be able to explain that we can raise up other groups without that costing us anything. This is not a zero sum game. By giving full rights to African-Americans, to women, to LGBTQ people, I don't lose a single right as a white straight male. So I think that that is one of the first things to explain. And that goes through also action. I mean, there's a group, an anti-racist group in Britain that I work a lot with, Hope Not Hate. And they do these local projects where they bring the multicultural neighborhood together to, for example, clean up the playground area or something else. It seems non-political, but by actually doing things together, like you realize that you have more in common with a non-white neighbor than with a white person who lives on the other side of the country. And so I, I very much believe in local organizing and also believe in, in practical organizing. So not just abstract debates about how racist is the U.S., but cleaning up your school, um, things like that. So in order to actually make progress, I guess, generationally at this point, we would have to have more constructive conversations instead of being like, like America had slaves and therefore it is racist and you're participating in racism. We should instead think of like constructive ways to be like, it's not necessarily your fault that you play into this system, but here are ways to improve the lives of other people. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, the biggest issues, of course. And I fully agree that we can only change by, by be, being made uncomfortable, right? But at the same time, if you're only made uncomfortable and you have a choice not to, like how many people are going to, to all the time look for that environment where they're kind of portrayed as the bad person? Now, whether that is fair or not, it's just a fact of life that most people are not looking for endless resistance towards, towards themselves. And so you, you have to, I think, to be successful, you probably have to find that balance. But I think it's also, it's both important to point out that there is a lot of discrimination still, and that that explains to a large extent why certain groups are held back. It's not because of what they put in, it's because what others keep them from having. And at the same time, it's also important to point out that by some very simple policies, uh, pretty much 99% of the American population can profit of all colors. Right? This is that this isn't zero sum game by taxing the one percent much higher, the cake becomes much bigger and everyone gets more. And so I think in that sense it is important to have a strong socioeconomic discourse, but not at the expense of recognizing the effects of centuries of white supremacy as well as of patriarchy and, and those other things. And so you have to find a balance. You also, I think the left also shouldn't be that defensive. There's, there's this whole 
discourse about identity politics, which is, of course, a political trick because Trump's politics were far more identity politics than Biden's. But it shows that, in that sense, the right has been much smarter because they use it as an attack weapon and many on the left are going to, liberals are going to, no, no, we are not in identity politics. Like, why always defend yourself? Like, make your own agenda. One of the things that you have to keep in mind is that for all the bad things, and there are many, right, tolerance is going up pretty much every year. It's a generational issue. Like the, the, the acceptance of diversity is much higher today than it was 30 years ago, let alone 60 years ago. Um, <clears throat> support for gender equality, for LGBTQ, all of these things go up. Even support of, for immigration has gone up significantly under Trump. So on the one hand, this is a generational struggle. Um, the basic support for far right is among older cohorts. Now, the fact that people are more pro-diversity doesn't necessarily mean that they will be pro-immigration. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will be for left-wing socioeconomic politics. Like those are other issues. But it is important to note that the population in the US, but also in Europe, has become much more open to particularly LGBTQ, um, but also to diversity. Um, also to gender uh, equal, sorry, gender equality. Part of me feels like we've become more accustomed to the idea of diversifying current systems of oppression, if that makes any sense. And I, I think that at some point we need to radically push a conversation in which like we understand that the systems of oppression are bad without just waiting for people to get slowly more accustomed to the idea of black and brown faces in high places. I, I wish there was a way to speed up that process. And at the same time, I guess what you're saying is you have to have an, uh, your own agenda on the left, but I, I do wish it wasn't such a slow and steady wins the race type of situation. Yeah, I mean, that's the difference between a revolutionary and, and a reformist, right? And I'm a reformist. I'm, I don't have much belief in, in revolutions, but Look, most of the big progress that has been made has been made actually by Supreme Court decisions, which like Brown versus Board of Education or Roe v. Wade were essential decisions which codified a development like from minority to majority view, but generally well before the majority actually supported it. But what do you see after it has been codified in law this becomes accepted by larger and larger groups. And that's, I think, these type of legal decisions can speed up societal acceptance. I think voting is essential. Even if you have to vote for people who are not the perfect candidate, that you also have to do. First, you have to replace a Republican by a Democrat. Then you have to replace that more right-wing Democrat by a more left-wing Democrat. But in the end, it is politicians who decide the laws and particularly here in the US, where gerrymandering is also very important, the gerrymandering. Um, so if you want to change those things, it has to go through voting. And I think I mean, the Georgia elections have been a very good example of what can be done with both grassroots mobilization and organization, as well as some serious
external finance. So do you think it's possible for the left to also have a candidate like Trump who is a catalyst for their ideals and really speeds up the process of spreading progressivism in the United States? That's a good question. And I think not at the moment. Like Trump is the outcome of decades of radicalization within the Republican Party, which started almost like with the Southern strategy in the 1970s. Now, Occupy Wall Street never had the same impact on the Democratic Party as the Tea Party had on the Republican Party, in part because the Tea Party was in line with that process of radicalization, which we haven't seen. That being said, it is, it is happening now, right? I see, I see the successful campaign of Bernie Sanders in 2016 very much related to the success of Occupy Wall Street. Um, he was less successful because there were more candidates in 2020, but there were also many more left-wing candidates in 2020 than there were before. And so I would imagine that in going forward, more and more outspokenly left-wing candidates will win primaries. And, and so again, I mean, this is Gramsci's whole idea is that you can only have political change after cultural change. The cultural change within the Republican Party had been going on for 50 years. So you, do you think as we move forward, we'll see more and more left-wing policies being adopted before we see radical leftists being elected? So like, for example, universal health care or stimulus checks or educational reform, like those bits and pieces of the left will be accepted before the left itself is? Yeah, I think it depends a lot on what, what, I mean, it's very clear that the Democratic Party has the majority support of Americans, but it's also very clear that the Republican Party knows that and is trying to make sure that a significant part of the American population doesn't vote. As long as that happens, the margins for the Democratic Party to get things done remain extremely narrow. And, and this is where we are now, and the chances are very big that in 2022, the Democrats lose majority as far as they have it at the moment in the Senate and potentially even in the House. That shift has to come, but it can't come from California and New York alone, right? Because the, the US isn't just California and New York. And in, in Georgia, having a Democrat is the first step. Having a left-wing Democrat is the next step. And having a radical Democrat, if that ever happens, like, is the second step. Part of me feels like the, the Democrats are fighting against grassroots organizers who worked so, so hard to make a, an electorate that was that allowed Ossoff and Warnock to, to be elected. And I think that their immediate like rescinding of the idea of the $2,000 checks and other social welfare policies is emblematic of their inability to follow through with what their base wants. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I personally think that so far, Biden has done more than I had expected. At the same time, it is not such a simplistic, let's say, women of color mobilizing at the grassroots, being opposed by white men. I mean, Michael Bloomberg, who is in many ways like 
the devil for the left, right, played a major, major role in fair fight, right, has, has bankrolled that operation to an extent that it would never have had the same success without it. Big money is important. That's just how the U.S. system is. And until that is changed, like the Democrats, even the more progressive ones will still have to rely on that, which, of course, puts limits on how radical you can be. But I fully agree. I do believe that, first of all, the Democratic Party is not seeing the potential it has in certain states, particularly in the South, and that the Democratic Party in various states, as well as in localities like our county, for example, um, athens Clark County, um, is not the most dynamic. And, um, and that can change. But like you can wait until they become dy- dynamic or you can actually just make them dynamic by taking them over because that's the other part. Many local democratic parties are not particularly big. Like, and so if you come in with a few hundred younger people, uh, a much more diverse group, with, within a year or two, you can run that group. Do you think that, especially with um, the Stacey Abrams gubernatorial race that we saw, in 2018, do you think that that's the beginning of the Democratic Party seeing potential in the South? Because that was the most expensive race ever. The entire nation paid attention to that. And I think that that was the start of why Georgia turned blue in the 2020 election. I fully agree. At the same time, what I heard through the grapevine was that that campaign was actually had some real issues, wasn't as professional as it's now made out to be. There was a lot of tension with the local uh, state uh, party. I'm not sure whether that has all been resolved, but Stacey Abrams has become a national politician. And so when she runs again in 2022, which seems to be a foregone conclusion, her power vis-a-vis the local like old elite of the Democratic Party will be exceptional. On top of that, she will have the full support, of course, of the senators. And there is this massive machine um, of people like Manisha Brown and others that, that just come in and and that is there to stay. Right? And I think that that has shifted power relations. I think many in the Democratic Party have looked at Georgia and now think, whoa, maybe we can also do this like in North Carolina. And we also do this in South Carolina even at the same time, I see a flurry of voter suppression laws coming out of the Republican Party. If you don't stop those, you can mobilize as much as you want, but it will become very, very hard. So to me, this is a fight at two levels. Like on the one hand, within Congress, there has to be some kind of new Voter Rights Act just to protect the process. If the process is inclusive, then with the current mobilization of the Democratic Party, I think there, there's a huge, huge potential. And again, I do think that the current leadership, particularly Biden-Harris in the White House, will be very supportive of that more grassroots and new, in a sense, new Democratic Party elite. But the Republicans understand very well what's at stake. And they have been very honest about it. <laughs> Even if they push through like the John Lewis Photo Rights Act, what they're talking about now, there will be many, many court cases um, against it at at different state levels, which probably will be able the enactment of the federal law and protect 
like the voter suppression at the state level. In, in, in that, I'm, I'm, reasonably, I'm reasonably pessimistic. At the same time, I think the more open it becomes, like that Republicans are literally saying we can't win if everyone votes, like, it sends a signal not just to the Republicans or the non-voters, right, but also to the softer Democratic voters. Like, I, and now what Georgia has taught us that if you run well organized, you can win. And that is a very different mentality, I think. And that mentality isn't so easily destroyed by, by voter suppression laws. I think that's a wonderfully positive place to uh, end today's episode. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Muda, for coming on the podcast. Where can listeners find you and what are you working on in the future? Well, um, sadly, they can find me on Twitter because I spent too much time there, um, which is at Kasmuda. Um, they can also listen to my own podcast, which is called Radical, which is the Dutch word for radical. And I'm working now primarily on radical right parties in Europe. I try to do less punditry. Like I'm a columnist for The Guardian US, but I try to write less. I try to let be less busy with non-party radical right and far right, because that's not really my academic specialty. And I'm working on a new book on on populist radical right parties in Europe in the 21st century. That's awesome. We'll put links to your Twitter uh, in the description. Perfect.